Thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Dais, a podcast about the stories taking place in and around El Paso County, Colorado. I'm your host, Scott Anderson, and today my guest is El Paso County Coroner, Dr. Leon Kelly. How are you doing today, Dr. Kelly? I'm doing great. Great. Doing great. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we get started, I just want to let listeners know that if they're interested in hearing more stories about people that are doing good in and around El Paso County or hearing from county leadership about local government priorities and how they operate, uh, they can find additional episodes of this podcast on their podcast platform of choice. With all that said, I want to go ahead and get right into it. So before we start talking about your role as county coroner, uh, if you could tell me a little bit about your work history prior to your current position. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in um, in Indiana. I'm a Hoosier. And I went to Indiana University, um, got a Bachelor's of Science in Biology. And at uh, got most of the way through, I originally thought maybe I'd be a dentist. Um, and then I spent some time, some summer work as a doing some research and apologize to all the dentists out there. But it was it was <laughs> the most mind numbingly boring job I'd ever had. So uh, you know, by then I had good grades. I thought, well, I'll try to get into medical school. So um, I applied to Indiana University School of Medicine, which is the main campuses in Indianapolis, and got accepted and did my medical school there. Um, got towards the end and had to figure out what, kind of what doctor, type of doctor I wanted to be. So I decided I wanted to be a pathologist. I liked working with my hands. My dad was a construction worker, so I had kind of always that, that instilled in me, that sort of skilled trade. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, surgery wasn't for me. I didn't like the lifestyle and the hours. I wanted to have a family and, and be involved in the community, maybe beyond what that type of lifestyle allowed. So pathology was kind of a good a good area for me. I was kind of a cerebral, like like to be in the background type of person. So I did my, my residency in anatomic and clinical pathology at Penrose St. Francis here in Colorado Springs. And that was in 2003. And I was there to 2007, and part of that part of that time of learning to be a pathologist was you had to spend some time doing forensics. Um, and so I actually did my month of forensics over here at the El Paso County Coroner's Office and fell in love with it. And it was a combination of, you know, public health, but, um, you know, all the branches of medicine, plus you got to work with law enforcement and attorneys, and you got to make an immediate impact in, in your community. That that minute, there were people, there were families, there were cops, there were media that wanted to know exactly what had happened. And it was your job to kind of solve those mysteries and, and get that information to them. So I ended up doing a fellowship in forensic pathology at the University of Texas in Dallas. So right. I was I was a I was a longhorn for a year. Um from June to June. By the time it was June again, I it was 110 degrees and I couldn't wait to get to get back to Colorado and yep. see some actual trees. So uh so I, I came back. When I went to fellowship I had a job essentially waiting for me here in back in El Paso County at this coroner's office. So I moved back in two thousand and eight and I've been with the coroner's office ever since. Great. And uh, for those that may not be aware, the El Paso County coroner is actually an elected position. It is, yeah. So Colorado is one of those states where it's still elected. And, and that's how it started out you know, a couple hundred years ago, that the person who was in charge of investigating deaths was, um, was known as a coroner. It was an elected position. And that was kind of what they had adopted from sort of feudal England. And as we got to the kind of 1900s and the fields of medicine and forensic science advanced, it it was clear that that's, that's probably not the best person to put in charge of investigating deaths when we had doctors and, and scientists who were specifically trained in it to just kind of elect a random person off the street mm-hmm. without any qualifications. And so many states, most actually, um, 
evolved their death investigation into what we, we call medical examiners, which are forensic pathologists or physicians who go into advanced training um, and figuring out how and why people die and, and learning all the other forensic sciences like fingerprints and blood spatter and, and firearms and all that kind of stuff. And so in most states, certainly big metropolitan areas, that, that position is no longer elected. And it hasn't been in some states like New York since the ni- early 1900s. Mm-hmm. It's an appointed position. So you, you go out and you find the best person for the job. And some other elected officials um, or, or official appoints that individual. And that person's known as the medical examiner. And, um, but, but not all states transitioned over. Um, the goal was that all states were going to move that direction. But kind of in the 60s and 70s, it sort of stalled and Colorado was one of those states where it did, and we never made it, um, with the exception of a place like Denver. Denver has an appointed chief medical examiner. They don't elect their coroner there. But El Paso County, we still do. And so um, what's unique about us, and, and in my opinion, not in a good way, is that um, not only do we still elect that person, but we haven't changed the qualifications for who that person is or what they need to meet um, since the founding of the state, essentially. So to be the coroner of essentially the largest medical examiner's office in Colorado, you need to be 18, registered voter, and a non-felon. That's it. No, 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 no training beyond third-grade health. Um, no training in forensic sciences, law, you know, investigations, nothing. That's all you need. And so um, where we are now is you have this, this really intense requirements to actually perform the job. Like, you, you have to be a medical examiner. You have to have done, you know, thousands of autopsies and overseen tens of thousands of death investigations and run a forensic toxicology lab. But the actual law doesn't require you to have any of the actual qualifications you would need to perform the the actual duties um, that are required of this position. And so, you know, every four years we vote on the coroner and every four years people have to relearn that, what, we vote on this? That doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. And my response is, you're right, it is crazy. But nonetheless, you still have to vote on it. Yeah, that's definitely a really interesting perspective. And I think a lot of people, like you said, once the election cycle comes, they're like, oh, we vote for a coroner. Interesting. And, uh, you know, that's something I had no idea that before I moved here that it was an elected position and was interested to find out about. So you have been the elected county coroner since 2018. Correct. Correct. Uh, During your time in the role, what have been some of your biggest takeaways? Well, this is this is a tough job, and, and you, you have a front row seat to essentially every tragedy that your community experiences. And so, you know, I, I've been here since 2008, um, and even before that in, in residency, but I've been in this office since 2008. And, you know, in that time, we've seen, you know, first, uh, a, you know, a new wave of prescription opioid crisis, right, the kind of the early um, 2010s, uh, and that evolved into what then essentially became sort of a heroin uh, crisis, and then coming out of that, we saw, you know, we here in this local area saw a significant um, rise in our particular teen suicides. And we were, we were being called the teen suicide capital of America um, because of the numbers of cases we've seen. So I, I helped lead us through that. And then, you know, we, we get that under control. And then we have a, a pandemic um, that, that is a global pandemic, but it certainly impacts us here locally. And so help leading our community through that difficult time. And then following that up with now a fentanyl crisis, which is sort of at the top of everybody's mind, and then sandwiching all of that <laughs> between two very contentious elections against at both times individuals who really were completely and grossly and dangerously unqualified for the job. Um, it's been a rocky road, right? Um, we, you go into this field knowing you're going to see really, really bad stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You can't deny that. It's right. death, it's tragedy, it's misery. It's, it's the worst of the worst every single day. 
and so you do your, you try to do your part, um, to one kind of the micro level of helping individual families and loved ones deal with this horrible tragedy. But then you also have a responsibility to kind of stay, take a step back and see what's kind of happening overall in the community and what can we do to help prevent these same sorts of deaths from happening to other people. And, and the, the role I've had here has been from the, from, from the ground level all the way up to the top of that, um, on various topics. And so, you know, I could write a pretty good book on, <laughs> on, uh, on what it's like to be on the front lines of various, um, various, you know, issues that face individuals as well as, as well as communities. And I don't, I don't take that for granted, right? It, there's, I think that physicians and, and folks in positions of leadership, that's all they ever wanted, right? Was a chance to, to make a difference and, mm-hmm. and help whatever that circle of influences they have, whether it's tiny um, or whether it's bigger or community-wide or sometimes national wide or even on the global scale, is, is to make a difference, right, and to, and to be a part um, of something bigger than themselves and a, and a force for good and for positive movement. And so that's what I've always tried to do is, is be, you know, um, impact positively my community and, and the various spheres in which I can, I can work and really be, you know, in many ways a transformative type of a leader where you, you take issues and challenges that I see in this position and then try to bring those to the broader community um, and say, look at this, this is what's happening. And then try to rally. I don't have the solutions, right? That's not what right. the coroner does. But right. to rally people around an issue and get people super smart in the room and community leaders and, and individuals together to go, let's do something about this. Let's fix it. You mentioned that in this job, uh, you deal with death on a daily basis, uh, something that thankfully I think a lot of people don't have to de- worry about. Uh, it, you know, it makes me wonder, how do you keep yourself grounded? How do you maintain a positive outlook in life yeah i mean when you're the you're the coroner you're a medical examiner your your whole life is worst case scenario like that's what you right. do every single day right. right and so you know i can certainly be a buzzkill at parties and like here's <laughs> <laughs> here's all the things you shouldn't be doing right. um but i think that you also you look at it at two ways one yeah you do see what can go wrong and the mistakes that people make and the ills and the problems with society and you do it every day but you also see, um, it's also a reminder of how precious life really is. Like I've, I've seen people killed by like a potato truck that like smash, like out of nowhere smashes them. Right. right. And so when you see things like that, um, it, you, it does put some of the small stuff in perspective. It does give you a sense that, you know, this, this doesn't really matter. Like this ridiculous drama about this issue isn't important. Um, and but these are the things that are important, and so while it is a constant reminder of of our mortality and, and those types of things and how f- fragile life is, it's also a reminder of well, you need to live a good one. You need to make it the most of every single moment. And, and I think most people would think, oh, that's got to be the most depressing job ever. And I mean, I'm like, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, there are days it sucks. Right. But at the same time. I'm surrounded by incredible people who do amazing work and, and we, we love it. We have a wonderful time. I, there's nothing that bonds people like tragedy and living through it. But when tragedy is every day of the week, um, you grow very close to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the part of this job I think that gets us all through is the camaraderie and the feeling of we are making a difference in a sphere and an arena in which 
99.9% of people would rather put their head in the sand and pretend it's not happening, right? Um, But these folks who do this every day um, have the courage to face the worst of the worst um, because they know in the end, everything we learn and everything we do here is about saving other people's lives. We're not going to save the people who are here, right? They've come through our door, but we have the opportunity to make everyone's life better, healthier, safer. And I think your point about the team that you work with being such a vital part of making any job livable, right? You know, it it may not be dealing again in in this situation with death all the time, but you know, there's certainly jobs out there where you could, you could have that heavy burden on you and uh, the team that you have by your side can make a big difference. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about your team and about, you know, uh, the the makeup of that team and what it looks like here at the coroner's office? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the medical examiner is the one that you see on TV. Um, you know, there's only about 500 forensic pathologists in the entire country currently practicing full-time. Um, I feel like there's probably more of that on television because every show seems to have one. But <laughs> right. um, but that's only the person that's kind of at the top. That's the quarterback. Um, and we all know from you know, our sports analogies that it takes everybody. And so who we have here is, um, obviously we have some administrative staff and stuff, but the individuals who get called in the middle of the night to actually go to the scenes of death aren't the medical examiners. There's, there are medical legal death investigators. And these are folks all with undergraduate degrees, most of which have also master's degrees in forensic science. And um, they work 24-hour shifts and they're on call. And when a death occurs and somebody calls 911, dispatch you know, calls these folks too, and they head out to the scene. They talk to the family. They investigate the death. They examine the body. They begin to look at medications, try to figure out who this person is, what, where, what's going on with them. And kind of make those first decisions about, one, do they even need autopsied? Um, what, what's the most appropriate thing to do with this person? Um, they may reach out to their doctor or, uh, and find out their, their history. Um, the most difficult thing they do is often next of kin notification. So when your 24-year-old son dies in a car crash in the middle of the night, these are the folks that have to come to your home and, and tell you that news. Um, so you can imagine that's an incredibly emotionally difficult job. And, sure. and then working with the families and walking them through that process. And then um, those individuals write a report um, and kind of give the, they're the eyes and the ears of the medical examiner, the doctors. And so we have, we have 10 medical legal death investigators here um, and we have uh, five um, board certified forensic pathologists on one of those. And so these are the folks that actually do the autopsies. Um, they're the ones that are specifically trained in overseeing all of this and, and give the guidance to the, to the, to the, uh, the death investigators and generally they're the ones that follow up with the families to let them know, you know, why the person has died, particularly in controversial cases or difficult cases. Um, we're also the ones that then go and testify um, in any criminal trials or civil trials. Uh, in this building, we have the state's only in-house forensic toxicology laboratory, which uh, means all of our drug testing or nearly all of it is done un- inside this building. So I have four full-time forensic toxicologists. These are folks usually with undergraduate degrees in chemistry or biochemistry or things like that, and then generally master's degrees in, in forensic toxicology. And then I've got my morgue techs who are the ones that physically help us do the autopsy. They, they'd be sort of the scrub nurse of, of the group who bring the bodies in and out, um, collect evidence, prepare the bodies, take photos, assist the doctor in the evisceration, which is the opening of the body and removal of the organs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it truly is a, it's a team. Um, and it's all overseen by myself and, and underneath me, the medical examiners. But, um, you know, we, we, we had 7,000 deaths last year in El Paso County that we investigated. You know, we did um, over 1,400 autopsies um, in this building. And so 
it takes a massive group of very, very smart, dedicated people to 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 deal with with true what truly is the worst tragedies imaginable every day. You mentioned that as a part of your role, uh, you're called on to testify in trials based on the results of autopsies you perform. Is testifying in trial a nerve-wracking experience for you? Is it something that you've come to come to grips with and, and something that is, that is uh, easier for you to deal with now? Can you talk a little bit about that process and what that's like? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think going into it, everybody's seen dramatic trials on TV, you know, with the big... The, the big statements by the attorneys or the prosecutors, the defense attorneys and all that kind of stuff. And there is some truth to that. It's a very performative uh, a theater, um, what's happening in there. But um, as a forensic pathologist, you know that's ultimately what all this is leading to, is presenting that to a jury. And, yeah, it, it's stressful when you're starting out. Um, the first few times are, are nerve-wracking. You feel a little bit like you're in a movie because um, you've only seen these kinds of things on TV. <laughs> yeah. um, but... But you got you got to remember the the, the uh, you're not I always always joke like at the end of the day no matter how bad a job I do testifying I'm walking out of there right and that's not true of everybody yeah and so you do keep it a little bit in perspective and and your job there is uh, not to win not to not to do anything but tell the truth the mm. truth the best as you see it um, and your job is to educate the jury and give them the tools necessary to make an incredibly difficult decision which is the foundation of our criminal justice system, right? You know, that that's how I feel about it. Is I, I'm not on anybody's team here. Right. I'm not speaking for anybody. I'm not advocating for anybody. My job is to show up, be unbiased, answer the questions, and whatever happens, happens. And so in that sense, there's really nothing at stake for me other than just to tell the truth. Right. Um, but but I have a core, core belief that um, you can be the world's greatest forensic pathologist. You can solve all kinds of murders and and be a g- genius. But if you can't take all that you know and you learn and communicate that to a jury or a judge mm-hmm. um, or attorneys, then you have no value. You've, you've done nothing. You've accomplished right. nothing. If you can't communicate that to a f- grieving family, mm-hmm. all the work, all the preparation, the 13 years of schooling after high school that it took to be it, is you, it's a waste. And so um, that's really what separates a really gifted and skilled forensic pathologist from just a good forensic pathologist is your ability to communicate, to, to, to educate and inform and provide those tools. But when you think about it, that's really what separates good anything from anything else, right? Whether you're a doctor or you're an attorney or you're, 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 you work in the food industry or service industry, it's your ability to communicate with the customer, the citizen, your coworkers is really what separates good from, from amazing. Um, and so I take a lot of pride in that. So I, I actually enjoy it. I mean, it's one of the highlights of my of my job is to get into that that um, witness booth, and 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 educate a jury and and provide that to them and and make sure that the science is is being represented accurately. I don't I don't care the outcome. I really right. don't. Right. Most of the time, I don't even know what the outcome. I walk out of there, go back to work. Um, but um, all I care about is that the jurors that are sitting there have everything they need in their in their head to make a good informed decision. That's what justice is. Yeah. And I think a lot of people like to believe that their work is scrutinized a lot of the time. Uh, I, I think when compared to the work that you guys do here at this office may fall a little, just a little bit, short a little of that bit a little in bit. terms of scrutiny. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about what that's like for you knowing that, you know, every note you take, every slip of paper you sign, you know, everything like that is, uh, 
held to the, the highest level of scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, it is, and it should be. Um, that That is the point of the system. And I, I'm i never upset when somebody questions me. In fact, I love it. Um, mm-hmm. you, you criticize me as much as possible because I guarantee you I've got the ba- I got the facts to back up everything I say. Um, that's what separates me a little bit from elected officials. Is <laughs> why so I am still an elected <laughs> official. I actually have to back up the things that I say because there's going to be a defense attorney or a prosecutor or an appeals court or something mm-hmm. that's going to go over every word I say. And so I I certainly I certainly welcome it. It to me it is it's an intellectual game of of chess um, that's that's incredibly complex. Um, but once again, I, I'm going to answer the question whether a defense attorney is asking me or a prosecutor is asking me or a family is asking me or a reporter is asking me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you the exact same answer because I'm not on anybody's team here. I'm on team truth and science and fact. And you do with those, that what you will. Um, that's not my responsibility. And so, um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't mind living in the world of the most um, advanced and, and, and intense scrutiny that exists. I'm, I welcome it. It's part of the fun to me. Very, very good. Uh, so you mentioned this a little bit earlier. I want to go back to it. Uh, recently, there's been a lot of conversation about fentanyl mm-hmm. in the community and, and the drug problem that lies there. Uh, can you share a bit about the danger that that drug specifically poses and what people can do to help fight against that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I'm a, I'm a big, I, I love history. Um, and not just because just it's interesting, because I think, Everything that we go through, there's historical precedent for it. Um, we talked about the pandemic a lot. Like, oh, this is unprecedented. No, it wasn't. Right. There was nothing unprecedented about it. We've lived through this hundreds of times throughout human history. The only, the only unprecedented part was that you've never experienced it, right? Sure. And that we had better tools to deal with it. And we had um, additional challenges um, dealing with misinformation and, and things like that just because of the technology and the time period in which we exist. But the viruses and the bacteria and the challenges of it, none of that was new. That was, that, we've done that many times. And, and fentanyl is kind of the same way. Um, you can say it's unprecedented, but these challenges are not. Um, and we're really 30 years... Uh, into an opioid crisis that began really kind of in the mid-90s and has gone through multiple waves. What's different and what makes it a bigger issue is the potency of this particular drug and um, the way in which it's distributed and the pervasiveness of it. And so, you know, the the challenges are that this is the most potent, um, and when I say potent, I mean toxic and dangerous, um, drug that's ever been released, you know, on the streets of any community. It's the same class. It's the same effect as other drugs. It's just more potent. And the difference is, is because the, the previous waves of the of the opioid epidemic, which began as prescription drugs, you know, those were manufactured in, in pharmaceutical companies of you know, pharmaceutical grade, and we knew what was in them. And, and there were problems, um, many problems, and many mistakes were made that led us to the beginning of the opioid crisis. Um, but as we then cracked down and, and, and got those drugs up the street and educated our doctors and our, and our patients and our, um, our communities and changed rules and laws, we got those out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them. But unfortunately, we didn't solve the addiction, all right? And if you don't solve the underlying issue and all you do is address it superficially, it's a game of whack-a-mole. And where you push down one place, it just pops up someplace else, and that's what's happened. And then we saw it evolve from, you know, prescription drugs to illicit drugs. And then you combine that with, then all the other things that go along with illegal drug trade start coming out. And then you, you've, 
you've magnified it wrong. Now you still did good, right? You, the goal is to get those drugs off the street. That's not, that wasn't a mistake. Mm-hmm. The mistake is when you don't address the underlying issue. Um, it's just going to manifest in other ways. And that's what we saw. Um, and it turned to illicit heroin. And now you've got a generation um, of, uh, you know, people who have, who have crossed over into illicit drug trade, which, which, as I said, creates many more problems. And then um, you do a good job there. You put pressure on that, and law enforcement gets involved, and you do all these wonderful things, and you, you try to suppress that. But once again, you didn't solve that underlying problem, right, which is humans have this incredible ability to not cope with the world in healthy ways. And as the world grows more complicated and, 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 uh, and more challenging, um, if we haven't solved the coping issue, once again, they're going to turn towards things that aren't helpful um, and that are dangerous and that cause more problems. And that's what happened here. A new drug comes in, a very potent drug. And now instead of it being heroin, which needs to typically be injected, sometimes smoked, others, there's natural barriers to its use, particularly for young people. Mm-hmm. You know, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds don't just decide today they're going to use heroin. Right. Um, and now you've got a drug that's incredibly potent, many times more potent than heroin, but now it's in a pill form in which you know every medical, middle schooler in America has taken ibuprofen or Tylenol, you've removed all those barriers. And so you've got an incredible, you've got an incredible appetite in this country for opioid because of we're now 30 years into this. And then you have a drug that's readily accessible, available, cheap, with no physical barriers to its use, that even when we look at traditional means of um, from a law enforcement perspective of blocking it, you know, get it out of the country. Don't let it in. Um, you know, work with these countries to, you know, burn their poppy fields or whatever. This can be made in a lab in a basement someplace. And so, and now you can, you can get the compounds, get it shipped into the United States and stamp it yourself. And so all the, all the protective factors that we use or that we have used that we've deployed previously are difficult, or difficult to, um, they're not, they're not successful um, in the same ways they may have been with previous, um, previous, uh, drugs or waves of this. And so it is truly a perfect storm of a very potent drug, uh, the demand for it, the availability of it, um, and, and no barriers to its use, which is why we've seen it go from um, to, to, to enter into younger individuals, um, teenagers and, and high school kids and, and college kids or college-age kids, um, because it is, it, it doesn't have some of the stigma um, of other substances, and it's, it's everywhere, um, but it's incredibly potent. So when you have a drug that's that potent, kids, you know, when, when I think the, the tragedy of fentanyl is that every previous generation has had the luxury of making mistakes, right? They, kids do dumb things because they're kids, right? That's yes, almost the definition <laughs> of being youth, youthful, right. right? As you make dumb decisions, mm-hmm. you learn consequences, and, um, and then you get better and you, you, you grow up. Right. Um, and so you want kids, you, you mean, you'd love to have a kid that doesn't do anything wrong, but that's just not the reality. Um, they're going to make mistakes and then you're going to love them. You're, you're going to support them through it. And then they're going to come out the other side. They're going to be wiser and smarter. Mm-hmm. That's what we've all done. If we look back at our own lives, but this generation doesn't have that right now. They're, they're living in a time where it just takes one time, right? They have a drug that can kill them one time using it. And some of them don't even know that that's what they're that's what they're using, and so I think I think that's the that's the hard part. When we look at the numbers of what we're seeing, um, we've seen a, a gross deviation from the average age of drug deaths from in the mid 40s now to the to the mid 30s, because we've got younger people earlier in that 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 substance abuse history where many of them, most of them, are going to 
work their way out of it. But now they've encountered a drug that doesn't give them that opportunity. And I think I think that's what's different about this, how it's why it's landing on people differently than a prescription drug part of the crisis or heroin or methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is still the number one drug that kills people in El Paso County. It is year after year after year. Nobody talks about it. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> mentions that. And the reason is is because we all have in our minds, right or wrong, what a methamphetamine user looks like and, and what that is. And, and you know, my job is to help everybody, but there's certainly a component of the community that may look at that and go, well, you know, what do you expect, right? These are longtime drug addicts. You know, this is what is in their heads. It's easy to dismiss those people as the other and, and not deserving of the attention or the sympathy or the effort or the tax dollars or whatever. But when you have something that lands differently because of kids and you see yourself in that and you see your own kids in that and you see how that could impact you, and we should we should care about everybody regardless, right? But we're human beings. And so we tend, when it, when it lands on us personally, um, it does feel different. And I think also when you, anything that impacts kids, whatever it is, we see that as this is a life loss that had so much potential, right? It had, they had their whole, and then suicide was the same way. When we had our suicide crisis, it was, it was, it was different because these were kids that were dealing with things that all of us dealt with that were simple um, to us because we've lived through it. Like we have that perspective, but to them, it was everything. It was devastating. It wasn't, it was not something that could come through. And so when you see that type of loss, it. It's incredibly hard. And it, it, you know, one of the truths about things is sometimes people don't care until somebody dies. Like, that's the reality. And my job is to figure out why people die. And so I tend to be the one that is, that is sort of the launch pad for efforts because I'm the one that's finally like, no, hey, people are dying from this right here, right? And now so everyone's concerned, like, oh, let's do something about it. And so that is my role in the community is to be that sort of bell ringer of, hey, we got a problem um, and, and, you know, that, that can be looked at as, I don't know, an unhealthy, I guess, way to live a culture, like a, for a culture not to care about anything until somebody dies. But right. at the same time, what is, what is more important than anything than, than taking tragedy? I mean, that is the human experience, right? Taking tragedy and, and then turning that into something good, right? And whether that's art or music or, or a career in a field that helps people, um, that's, that's, that's what our role here is. And so I've tried to do that throughout my career here with, unfortunately, various waves of problems that we've had um, in various arenas. Yeah, and you've, you know, you've mentioned it a couple of times, and I think it's important to note, uh, in addition to your role as the El Paso County Coroner, uh, you're also the president of the Colorado Springs chapter of the National Alliance of Mental Illness, I think more commonly referred to as NAMI. Um, again, in mentioning uh, teen suicide and issues like that, uh, can you explain why that role and being a proponent for mental health awareness is, imp- is important to you specifically? Yeah, so my... Um Obviously, professionally, when I look at the cases that come through our door, whether it's you know substance abuse or suicide or you know domestic violence and you know any of our substance abuse type situations, all of that boils down to mental illness or lack of mental wellness um, is really another way to look at it. And the problems that I see that human beings have that end up here, um, it generally comes down to people finding unhealthy ways to cope with the stresses of their life. 
And if you think about it, bad things happen to everybody. Everybody has their challenges. Everybody has their struggles. Now they they may be different. They may um, you know, there may be more or less or depending on who you are, where you grew up, and the, the, the situations that you were handed, right? But all of it comes down to whether you have the ability to deal with them and overcome them and move forward and grow from them. And where we see people do poorly is generally when they don't. Um, that's not that's not necessarily a fault of their own as they're growing up. They, they don't have the tools in their toolbox to deal with it. Then they make bad decisions. Those things compound, yeah. right? Um, that's how you end up in a jail in a coroner's office, right? Um, and a lot of that comes down to once again, lack of mental wellness. And certainly we're not talking about in this particular case, um, those who like schizophrenics and severe debilitating mental health issues, but, um, but that's you know, a component of it. That's also what we see here as well. And certainly what's at the jail. But I think when I look at the landscape of what we deal with as a society, you know, homelessness and you know, a lot of the other things that we, that are at the kind of the top of our minds, um, come down to that. And so when I want to invest time and energy upstream on things, to me, there is nothing more important and more critical than than mental wellness and mental health, and um, so that's on the professional side. On the on the personal side, um, you know, my my I had a single mom, and she had severe mental illness. She was um, she was bipolar and had um, borderline personality disorder, um, and which is a very difficult kind of combination and a category of mental mental illness and. Um, and so growing up in that, you don't know as a kid what, you don't know it's normal. You, this is your first, this is your first time around, right? So, um, you know, to, to live that life and to see that up firsthand and, and have those mental health crises in my own home growing up in many ways, feeling like the adult, right? And, and, the, and the parent, um, and the caretaker, um, and the one who had to figure out how to get food and figure out how to take care of my little sister and stuff you 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 see you know what that's like for these families right and so um the thing that nami does that that means a lot to me is not only do they help the individuals who are struggling themselves with mental illness but they also are there to support the families the people around them and and we know um the difference in outcomes between someone who who has a mental illness and has no support like we see them every day right down at the park driving around town Versus people who do have support in place and the outcomes. And so if you can you can educate and you can support the people that are supporting that person, everybody does better. Um, everybody's life is improved and, and the outcomes are better for everybody. And so that's what I love about NAMI is that their, their peer-to-peer programs are led by volunteers. They're people who've been there. Who better to help either someone who has a mental illness, you know, shuttle them through it, um, or a family member who's also had a family member um, shuttle them through it than someone who's been there, who's experienced all of that, right? Me as a doctor, you know, I can tell you so much about the science and, you know, all the stuff behind it, but you have to have the lived experience to really know. I mean, that's why Alcoholics Anonymous and, and all those types of groups work is because the the education, the wisdom is coming from a lived experience. And, and then who better than to have that and then also support that person who's already come through it, right? Because I've been there. I know. I've, I've, I'm seeing success. I'm living it. And then helping you gives me purpose, right, and, and, and helping keep me in a good place. Um, and so it's, it's really a beautiful, it's a, it's a beautiful organization and um, the impact that it makes. And that's why we have so many people that go through it and then turn around and come back, and, and now they're the ones that are leading the peer-to-peer and so for me, it's both professional and it's and it's and it's personal. I wish I would have had an army as a kid. Um, I I 
I didn't understand what I had lived through with, with um, my own mom until I was in medical school and did my you know, psychiatry rotation and spent time at the, you know, the state mental hospital um, and, and read the books. And I was reading the descriptions of these. I'm like, oh, my God, that was my life. That's, that's what my mom had because she was undiagnosed um, until much later in life. So I've been there. Right? I've been on the receiving end of the, of the difficult phone calls and the, the police um, coming to your house because somebody's out of control. I, I appreciate you for sharing that. I, you know, certainly those personal experience, you know, they, they shape, they shape our lives. They, they shape the things that we do in our lives. And mm-hmm. I think uh, to the County's benefit um, has led you to where you are today to some degree. So I certainly thank you for that. Um, for those who may need help from NAMI, mm-hmm. for, for those who, uh, for themselves, for a family member, uh, what would be the best way to uh, reach out to them to receive that help? Yeah, so, so NAMI um, is a national organization. It's the largest sort of grassroots mental health organization, but every region has their own sort of chapter. And so we have NAMI Colorado Springs, which is here in town. Um, we're over on the southeast side on, on Murray. And you can just NAMI, N-A-M-I, um, Colorado Springs, Google it, and um, you'll get all the information there, all the different groups, all the different types of classes and courses that they have there. Um, you can call the number. They have people answering the phone, a lot of it's just guidance. Uh, this is what's happening in my life. You know, my son, my daughter, my spouse, or this is happening to me. Who, who do I call? Where do I go? I don't understand. One of the, to me, one of the great fallacies of, of the way we treat mental health in this, this country is that there's nothing more complicated than navigating, like, any sort of medical care, like your insurance and how to get a doctor. And Like, it, I'm a doctor, and I still can't navigate it. Right. You, right. you don't know, like I need this, you know, I mean, my need scoped or whatever, you know, so whatever problem you have, like it's almost impossible and, and mental health is no different. It falls under that same umbrella of super confusing, super bureaucratic. And yet we are asking people who by definition have a mental health, their brain is not um, processing the world around them optimally, right? That is their disease is their brain is not able at this moment to navigate the world. And then we're going, Good luck, right. you know, good luck with you, with your, your problems. Um, and that's what NAMI helps do, right? It helps, helps an individual who is in a very dark, difficult place, who, whose very disease prevents them from being able to access good care. Um, it helps hold their hand through this process. And for a family who's dealing with a, a kid or a loved one, that they're at their wits end, they're struggling, and now we're going to ask them, hey, I know you're barely keeping your job because you've got this kid that you – you got to care for, and you don't know what to do. And um, but here, here's a. Can you hold and sit on this phone for an hour, waiting for someone to, you know, take your message or whatever? And so, uh-huh. um, and that's what Nami does. It's there for those people in those moments. And it's also what I love about it is there's a lot of great nonprofits, but I also want to be part of one that's a that's, that's goal is recovery. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't just about handing something out and then sustaining a problem. Um, and there are some circumstances where that's the best you're going to do, but not with mental illness. Mental illness is something that you can recover from. That's what NAMI's run by people who have come through this. And it's a lifelong struggle, and they always have to be on top of it. But it's about making people's lives better and getting them, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a movement in, in, um, in, in mental health and in, in public health, really, which is about humans need three things to survive. They need people, place, and purpose. They need people around them 
who support them, who, who are there for them to celebrate their successes, right? But also there to help them with their difficult times. They need, um, they need a place. They need someplace they feel safe. Well, that's a home or a church or a community or, or whatever. They need that. They have to have a place to go where they can feel a part of something bigger. And then they need a purpose. They need a reason to get out of bed every day. They need a, they need a, they need a, they need a place in the world where they go, this is what I do, right? This is what's meaningful to me. This is how I contribute. This is how I provide for myself. And, um, and, and this is how I express who I am. And so when you provide people all three of those things or they have the opportunity for all three of those things, people will find success. They will. But when they're missing one or more of those, that's how we end up with the problems that we see here at the coroner's office. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And, you know, we're, we're getting about to the end here, and I just wanted to um, maybe talk about something a little bit lighter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you, uh, the, like we mentioned a couple of times, there's a lot of heavy things that mm-hmm. you deal with in this office that your staff does. Uh, but you've you've from the very beginning, and you've mentioned it throughout this conversation of wanting to give back to the community, help out in the community. Um, we're recording this uh, for those who care to know on November first, the day after Halloween. From what I understand, you do a, a coroner's Halloween ball. And uh, there are some other things you do within the community. I, I just want you to talk a little bit about those things and and why giving back and doing those kind of things helps bring the community together and really uh, benefit benefit you and and the things that you do. Yeah. So you know we've talked a lot about some really really sad difficult things here, but uh, that doesn't. I don't want that to be my whole life. So um, I also you know have a family and and, and like to enjoy the world and. Um, but I also, I am who I am, right? You don't end up being the coroner because you like rainbows and sunshine. So, so, so my role in the community is very clear, which is like, oh, that's the spooky guy, right? That's the guy who's in charge of all things dark and macabre. So, um, one of the things that led me, and I didn't know this at the time, but one of the things that led me to my career was I, I loved scary movies I, I, growing up. That was you know, the VHS um, tape was my babysitter um, yeah. at, for much of my young life. And so I grew up with the, the, the in the golden era of horror movies. So I run a horror film festival with one of my buddies who's a forensic pathologist as well. And so we do that quarterly. So we bring all of our friends and family and community together to watch really scary movies and play trivia and have a good time. And and then, yeah, I, I hosted just this last, past weekend the call, uh, the Corners Halloween Ball. It was technically the first official Corners Halloween Ball, but I've been throwing Halloween parties for a very, very long time. And so, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, Halloween kind of got the shaft for a few <laughs> years here. So yeah. I wanted Halloween to be back with a vengeance. And so we, we threw the biggest, best Halloween party we could imagine. And um it was like an early 1900s sort of traveling carnival um, uh, with the oddities fair and circus acts and and every creepy thing you can imagine. So it was a great time. And and to me, you know, we're all going to die, right? And and that's the reality of it. And and there are scary and dark things that happen. Um, but Halloween gives us the opportunity to try and you, we, we get to put on the scary mask for once and we get to take control of that. And that's, that's really what Halloween grew out of is mm-hmm. people not understanding the world in which they lived and in, in, in fear. And they said, okay, for one night, um, you know, when, when, when we feel like the world's going from light to dark, right. From, from growth to death, um, when the, the veil of the, the, the difference between the living and the dead you know, in, in folklore is the thinnest, that's the night we put on the mass and we celebrate and we get to be the, we get to be the scary ones for once so that we don't have to be, that we don't have to be afraid of the dark because we are the dark, right? So it, it was a, it was a great, it was a blast. It was an awesome time. So 
I try to do my part um, and, and, and bring a little bit of levity and a little bit of fun um, to even the, even the darkest and scariest things that we have. Great. Well, uh, I just want to give you one last opportunity. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, uh, speak to your, your position or anything else that you'd like to talk about before we close? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, that we all see the challenges that we have um, in, in the world right now. And it can seem overwhelming. It can seem big. Um, but, but to me, we all have things we care about. And every single person has the opportunity to, to change things. And we have some of the most incredible nonprofits um, in the country, in this community, um, and so, you know, instead of feeling powerless and feeling, feeling like, oh, this, we got fentanyl and we got election stuff and, and we got all these problems, um, do something about it in a positive way. <laughs> it does us no good to rant and rave and take deep rabbit hole dives on the internet. Um, do something good, right? And reach out to people and, and reach out to nonprofits in this community, whatever it is that you care about. They always want volunteers. They always need help. They always need donations. There's always, there's events going on every weekend. Get involved so you can feel like you're giving back. Um, this job would be way too hard to do if I didn't feel like we could make a difference and that we couldn't, that we couldn't use what's hard and challenging and difficult and sad and tragic and, turn it around and make something good come of it. And every challenge we have has those opportunities, no matter what it is that you care about, there's opportunities to change that um, for the better. So, so please do, do do what you can. Well, thank you, Dr. Kelly. I appreciate you taking the time today. And, uh, you know, I appreciate all the work that you guys do uh, here at the coroner's office for El Paso County. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks. And if you are interested in listening to additional episodes of Beyond the Dais, uh, you can search for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.